0: It is my privilege uh, to get to share with you guys this morning, and uh, there's not a lot of preamble for this because uh, I got all kinds of stuff that I want to share, and I've got just a little bit of time to share it in. Um, Now, we have been in this uh, series on the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and uh, we started this, I had to look this up, we started this uh, September 4th, Kevin got up and he shared September 4th, 2023, 22, last year, this year, <laughs> um, and Kevin got up and he said, hey, we're going to do this series on the book of Mark, and if we if we do it all right, we'll probably be wrapping up in April or May, so hey, here we are. Um, Russ was just headed out on sabbatical and we had guests who came and shared and we've had this whole season of just, it's been actually really incredible. I'll be honest, this is the most in-depth study that I've ever done of Mark. Um, it's not a book of the Bible that I had spent a lot of time with and so I was actually kind of excited for this and I've, I have really loved it. Um, I've really gained a lot from it. So, when I looked at the close of Mark, the end of Mark, um, I don't know how I had missed this. I know I've read it before, but there are two endings to Mark, two completely separate endings, with a disclaimer. How many disclaimers are there in your Bible? There's a real disclaimer in in my Bible over the end of Mark, a full-blown, like, Some scholars believe that this is not the true ending, but we're going to put it in anyway. So I was like, oh, oh, this will be fun. Um, So as we look at this passage, as we look at sort of our recap, um, I'm going to recap a little bit about Mark. I am going to talk a little bit about kind of the setup the end of Mark and then I'm going to talk about this really weird double ending and instead of focusing a whole lot on the content of the two endings and doing a sort of like which one do we think I'm going to talk about how scripture works how do we end up with the scripture that we end up with right like how, how do we get the scriptures that we get and why are they considered canon and I've got, like, at least one cool picture of something called the Codex Vaticanus, which I pulled up and was like, oh, this is really cool. So, yeah, that's it. So we're going we're gonna to actually be looking at some of these, like, how do we get here when it comes to what we consider authority? And so um, we're going to revisit that as well. Um, but, yeah, so here we are. Um, at the end of Mark, and I think this is an opportunity as we wrap up Mark, to consider the scripture that we have in front of us and why we consider it what it is. That said, uh, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm an English teacher. Um, and while I love text, whoop, whoop. <laughs> I love text, I love being critical with text, Um, I love thinking about text in different ways, Um, and considering carefully how text comes to us, I love the materiality of text, yes, I'm getting an amen from some Whitworth students over here, Um, it's also a little bit daunting, Um, so I'm going to start with prayer. Holy Spirit, I just ask that this morning as we take a look at your word, that you would open up our hearts as well as enlightening our minds to the beauty of your moving through history in word, in printed material, in what people have labored to write down and to care for, and to preserve, and that we would, in this, be able to, in this morning, be able to re-examine for ourselves uh, where our hearts are at, um, what things we still carry regarding what we were told the Bible was, what we were told Scripture was, um, what you hold Scripture to be, and how you want it at work in our hearts that that would be a new journey between us and you, and that this morning would contribute to that journey, um, that it would not reinforce any sort of heaviness from the past, but that it would stir some wonder. I ask that you would be with my words and uh, help me to be organized. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how often you guys pray for organization. I do it daily, so there you have it. I just did it out loud. Okay, so Mark, uh, widely believed to be uh, an assistant to the disciple Peter. Um, This is Mark the Evangelist, uh, John Mark, um, who was spoken of and defended by Barnabas, um, and one of the early, um, one of the early members of the church that was sent out, uh, there is some belief that Pentecost occurred in Mark's house, that that's where they were gathered, that they were locked in this upper room um, in Mark's house. So he was one of those guys that was there from early, early on, um, but was not a disciple of Jesus. And so what we have. In the Book of Mark, which uh, scholars do believe to be the earliest gospel that was written down, um, that Luke and Matthew take their cues from the Book of Mark, and that quite possibly, Mark, the Book of Mark was written down in Rome, um, in the same year that the Temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So, in 66 A.D., there was a Jewish uprising in Jerusalem. And uh, Rome squished that over a couple of years. And when that was squished, the Roman Empire, in a very imperial way, um, wanted to make sure that the Jewish people felt completely defeated, so they wiped out the temple. And this was the second temple, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D., and um, I think I've mentioned before that we had the opportunity um, when my husband and I were in Rome with some Whitworth students this January to see an archway that was built to commemorate the destruction of the temple. And it was a celebration of the power of Rome. And on, that tem- on the um, archway, you can see temple items that are being taken back to Rome. Um, and... Yeah, it's interesting to kind of think about how history intersects with what we have here of Scripture. So, 70 AD, the destruction of the Jewish temple, um, Mark is in Rome, and he begins to pen what we have as the gospel of Mark. This is our understanding of how this has come to us and, and how this looked, um, As a book, it's a little bit interesting. A couple of things about the book of Mark is that it doesn't have an account of the birth of Jesus, um, or really the background of Jesus. It starts with John the Baptist and uh, starts Mark 1, um, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And Kevin pointed out in his introduction to Mark that really this is, this is an acknowledgement that um, the children of Israel had been waiting 400 years for the fulfillment of prophecy of the Messiah. And so here comes John saying that he is preparing the way for Messiah As we've looked at Mark, one of the things that we have seen is that there may have been a different expectation of what Messiah would be and what Messiah would do, and that Jesus actually came with a much bigger vision than the one that the Jewish people who were living under Roman rule and occupation, more than what they wanted, um, that Jesus came with something bigger, and... So, as we examine sort of how Mark sets up, what we get are a lot of vignettes of the ministry and life of Jesus, Um, that he goes from one event to another event, and that these interconnected events set up a kind of urgency. This is what it's like to do life with Jesus. Urgency, as in literally urgency. Mark uses the word immediately 41 times in the book. Immediately, this finished, and they did this. Immediately, they did this afterwards. So there's a lot of urgency, a kind of this happens, and then this happens, and then Jesus goes and does this. Now, if you think about Mark as sort of hearing these sermons from Peter, that actually kind of... That seems on brand for Peter. Like, oh, and then we did this, and then this happened, right? Passionate Peter. So we have this setup through Mark that is what is discipleship? What it is to live life with Jesus. We live life in a way that is sometimes urgent. There's an urgency to the burden that we carry for the kingdom, especially in the opposition of what we see in our culture and the embracing of an imperial mindset, that we live lives that are a little bit peculiar, that are quietly generous, that we desire to be people of humility, And then we get through these stories of the life of Jesus to the death of Jesus, and then the resurrection, and then Mark suddenly ends, and it's odd, it's weird. The end, and we'll look at it here a little bit more closely in a second, has two passages. And most scholars, biblical scholars, people of faith who have studied this um, over the course of their lives, agree that the second ending is not authentic to Mark. And we're going to look at why. So why is it still here? We're going to look at why. And as we look at the scholarship, and I really hope to just highlight things for us, I want us to ask some deeper questions how do we have what we have when it comes to scripture and why do we have it and then a kind of obvious question that comes out of that is um, can we trust it can we trust what we have especially when you sit there and read a disclaimer that says this probably isn't accurate ish <laughs> right What does that mean that it's not accurate? So we're going to take a look at that. And then what do we take away often in class when we're writing? I will ask students, after you've done all the research and you've dug in and you've done all the reading and you're writing about it, can you ask yourself, so what? What are the implications of this, of what I've just researched, of what I've just read? Okay. So, you ready? Here we go. We have, when we look at the evidence of Mark, we have external evidence, we have internal evidence for what is Mark. The book of Mark is based, as we have it, when you open your Bible, when you flip open your phone and you're at the book of Mark, it is based on, what we have, is based on Approximately 1,600 different texts that have been preserved through antiquity and history and condensed and studied and cross-examined to be what we have now when you reference the book of Mark, what we have just looked at for the last nine months. 1,600 different texts. And the majority of those texts have the second ending as the ending. So why a disclaimer at all? If you have a majority of texts that say, and, and by majority, I mean like, like 98% of them have that second ending. So why not just go with that? Like that's the second, like that's the ending. Well, there's a difference between quantity, right, and quality, So you can have 1,600 texts that identify that, like, yes, we've got this second ending in here, but what if just a couple of those early, early texts that are the best preserved don't have it? What does that mean? Why is that important? So we have, when we look at those texts... A question regarding age, regarding authority. Okay, so here's where it got kind of fun as I was doing some research. Um, this idea that as scripture was being written down, that it was influenced by the places where it was being written down and preserved that the book of Mark has two really prominent influences. One is an influence that came out of Alexandria, which is actually traditionally where it's believed that Mark was martyred, that he was a bishop in Alexandria, and that at the age of about 56, um, that he was martyred in Alexandria um, because they didn't love that he was saying that there was one God and that they should turn away from their gods. And so, he was no longer the bishop when he was martyred, and the bishop that was there was part of preserving the texts that he had been working on. So, we have out of Alexandria and out of Byzantine, two different texts. The oldest witness to Mark, and we'll put that Codex Vaticanus back up on this screen. The oldest witness to Mark and the most consistently preserved, carefully preserved, is the Codex Vaticanus. This goes back to the 4th century, so 300. This is held by the Vatican in their secret archive. And as you can see, here's what's curious about it, as Mark ends, and I can't blow this up, unfortunately, I did try, Um, but as Mark ends, there has been space that has been left, and you can see some writing over there on the right side, that's actually what is coming through um, from the other side of the page but there was all this space that was left and people thought this was really curious. It was almost like the scribe knew there was more room or left room to put more in and there was kind of a curiosity about, well, why would you leave all that extra space? Was the scribe aware that there was more to be added and is that important? This text has, this particular text has been considered the authority on other texts that it is so thorough, so clear. And it doesn't have that second ending. Here's what's difficult, though. Two of our earliest church fathers, Arrhenius in 180 AD and Tatian in 170 AD, both quote that longer ending both quote the second ending. So going all the way back to within 100 years of it being written, 200 years of it being written, people are quoting it. So that second ending is that old. It's that original. This might be some of the reason why people have been hesitant to say absolutely it's this or it's this because Christians have been preserving both since some argue 95 AD. So if it was written in 70 AD and people have been quoting it since 95 AD, right? So then the question sort of arises: well, okay, why why would you take it out? Is it because there's content in it that disagrees with anything else? Like you start to look at motive. Why would, you, why would you take it out? Why would you not have it in there? When you read it, and we'll do that in a second, when you read it, it sounds really different. And there's some content in there that sounds really different, but none of the content could be proven to be contradictory to any of the rest of Mark. None of the content could, but the way that it was written could so here's what we have. As early as 180, maybe even 95 AD, we've got people quoting this bizarre, long second part. But by the Middle Ages, it was absolutely a given that that second long reading was the end of Mark and had been written by Mark. Mark. So where you have church bishops who are quoting that long ending, they were considered the minority. This was a common text that was used by the Christian community. And so the majority would have gone with this text that was written down. They would have gone with this text So the majority of Christians in the first, second, and third centuries would have gone with this older text, the shorter one. So by the Middle Ages, that had flipped. By the Middle Ages, we have a majority who think that this longer text is the one. So what's happening here? This is how we get our canon of scripture. It comes up through these moments of time. And it's really tempting, and I'll be honest, it's tempting to say, well, that's just because of human human flaw, right? People are just, you know, they've got agendas and they're going to leave stuff out. What is actually demonstrated here is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of people being really nervous about their agendas. They don't want to leave stuff out. They don't want to get it wrong. What this journey of the book of Mark actually demonstrates is a faithfulness to understanding the power of Scripture and holding a kind of holy fear that if we take this out and we get it wrong... What do we like? What like what will those who come after us have if we all just keep doing that? So, what do scholars now agree about this passage? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the passage. Rachel, did I give you the passage? Let's take a look at the first ending. Mark 16, 19. This is the the traditional end of Mark, and this is believed by modern scholars to be the end of Mark. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. When Jesus rose early on the, ne- on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those. This is the second, this is moving on. This is the second reading. This is added on. She went and told them who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he'd risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. That second section contains in it, none of the does not contain in it any of the mark isms that the previous sixteen chapters of Mark have had. Mark had a very Jewish way of speaking. So although he wrote in Greek, he used all these Jewish isms in his Greek. He wrote Greek as it was his second language, and that shows up and is completely consistent throughout the book of Mark. So we see this Hebrew influence throughout the book of Mark and right up through that first ending. And yet, it does not appear at all. None of those isms appear at all. Now, you could say, well, yeah, but isms, you have to have the right passage for one of those Mark-isms to show up. Mark uses a Hebrew word when he uses the word and. And this, and this, and this, and then this happened, and then this happened. In that last passage, he doesn't use it at all. Travis Williams from the University of Exeter says, The striking part of Mark is that he employs the word kai, and, the word for and, like a Jewish author. He places it at the beginning of sentences to string one idea to another so that multiple statements are in a coordinated relationship. This is good Hebrew, but it's terrible Greek. Kai is used in a Hebrew context, and this, and this, and this, and this. If Mark does this so often from Mark 1.1 to Mark 16.8, enough to establish this as a trait, not just of his particular writing uh, compared to other Hebrew writers, but literally of Mark, (laughs) like actually of Mark, If Mark does this so often, why not in the longer ending? Why use a distinctive style for 16 chapters and then change it? This is one of the number one reasons why modern scholars say, yeah, that second ending, not so much. And yet... With all of the history of Scripture that we have, and that second ending having been preserved as authority, and considered complete authority, and the authority, authoritative end of Mark at the end of the Middle Ages, going into the Renaissance, what do we do? At what point do we say, oh yeah, no, this doesn't count? How do you do that? So you have all of these people through history who are working to hold on to something that would be considered by us as canon. And they carry a holy fear of getting it wrong. The verse was not added in. Um, It got cut short, but... At the end of the traditional version of Mark, the women are told, the women meet the angel. The tomb is empty, and they are told, go and tell the disciples, and they don't. The book ends with the women being afraid. It says they were afraid, and they did not tell anyone. And so some of the argument is that second ending's a bit better because it confirms all the things that they were told to do and that Jesus appeared. We like the second ending more. And yet they're both there. So what do we do with that? Thank you for bearing with me as I have unpacked this in a way that I hope made just a tiny bit of sense but here's here's what I want us to think about as we head away from today <sighs> Scripture's weird and I don't know about you but I don't know how many times as a kid a high schooler a college kid When I told somebody that I was a Christian and they're like, really, you believe the Bible? Like, really? Like, all the people who had all of these ideas and, like, wanted their opinions in there, like, you really believe that this is, like, authoritative? I was like, I mean, I want to, but since you put it that way... At one point during this study... I was listening to this guy who spent 150 hours on this last passage of Mark. And he's talking about how Mark talked about stuff and like where he basically used his, like how he used his words and how he like his accent, how his accent came through. And all of a sudden I had this moment, this is Mark And we're, like, talking about how he talked. That's kind of amazing. And then I thought, wait, like, in the Middle Ages, like, people were hiding these scriptures so that they could be preserved. People's lives were on the line so that these scriptures could be preserved. 1,600 texts survive. No... No text, when you to sum up the Bible as a text, no text, no other text has been scrutinized as much as scripture has been scrutinized. And it's full of anomalies. And we need to be okay with that. And I don't mean like you need to be at peace with it. I mean, we need to be okay with the struggle of that because the struggle is beautiful it calls us into more it calls us deeper Charles Spurgeon any chance to use a quote that has the word a soak in it some people like to read so many bible chapters every day I would not dissuade them from this practice, but I would rather lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses all day than rinse my hand in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a text of scripture and to let it be sucked up in your very soul till it saturates your heart. Can I just encourage us? It's so fun to think about scripture as something that people have wrestled with through generation after generation. So much so that you get two funky endings to the book of Mark. And it's okay. Christians have thought that's okay for a very long time. I'd like to encourage us. Let's revisit if you ever had a moment in your life where you were just kind of captivated by Scripture, let's revisit that. Let's revisit the wonder of it. Brueggemann says this, and I'll finish up with this. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception, alternate Alternative to consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. I love my reels, but they're like, what, 12 seconds long? I spent more time on this sermon knowing it would be less clear for the time I was spending on it than any other sermon I've ever preached. But I wanted to because we have something we're actually working against. Culture that says if you can't figure it out in 12 seconds, don't bother. If it doesn't satisfy in 12 seconds, don't bother. If it doesn't make sense after you've taken a a good look at it and maybe read a couple chapters of a really dense book, don't bother. And we're doing something prophetic when we bother. And so let's do that. Let's do that. Let's dig in. Let's let it be conflicted. There are great resources. I would be happy to share with you any of the things that I was digging through. But let's dig in together and really enjoy this scripture that by the grace of God we have received. And then let it do its wonderful, wonderful work. In us, As we wrap up intentions, I would like to pray again the prayer of Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. The fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But... I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and even in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.